Welcome to the Speaks Exchange podcast with your host, Donald Taylor. As a renowned learning and development industry expert, as well as chairman of the Learning and Performance Institute, Donald sits down with experts from around the globe to talk business communication, learning technology, language, digital transformation, and engaging, upskilling, and reskilling your organization. This podcast is brought to you by Speaks, the first intelligent language learning platform for the digital workplace. Listen in and you might learn a thing or two. Welcome to this episode of the Speaks Exchange podcast with me, your host, Donald Taylor, and today our guest is Greg Detra, former chief data scientist at Channel 4, and among other things at the moment, a data consultant. Greg, great to have you with us. Thanks, Don. Lovely to be here. I don't like to go into a huge introducing of people when they can do it so much better themselves. Greg, could you introduce yourself? Where are you coming from, professionally speaking? Well, I... uh trained as a computational neuroscientist studying why we forget things and they say that psychologists study their own deficiencies and so I have a terrible memory (laughs) and uh, on the back of that I co-founded a startup called Memrise. I've been working in the startup world for most of the last few years as a mix of CTO and uh, data scientist most recently working at Channel 4 as um, chief data scientist there and now I help startups and larger companies to get the most out of their data teams out of the data they're collecting to hire the right people and manage them in a way that help them really tackle interesting problems effectively. Data is everywhere at the moment. I was doing a talk this morning. You can't get away from it. I threw up a slide that showed all these magazine front pages from probably about eight or nine years ago, but it was all about big data. And then I said, what happened to big data? And it sort of went away as a buzz term, but the use of data entered our daily lives. I illustrated that by just throwing up some of the stats that we bandy around in the world of football every day, because if you're a football fan, you're suddenly used to heat maps, assists, number of miles run during the course of a game and so on. Things that we never talked about when I was a kid growing up. Mm. Now it's part of daily life. So we're already at a phase where data is part of how we do stuff. What's the future? Is the future entirely machine-led or is it human or is it something else? I grappled with this question a few times at at The Guardian and Channel 4 especially, where both companies are, uh, they're they're companies that put put a lot of weight on words and being uh, the head of the data science team or the chief data scientist, a a, a team of people who care about numbers, there's a real uh, sense in which um, it would be easy to talk past one another. And uh, I remember, for instance, one project at Channel 4 where we were trying to help them improve their forecasting. And for the last 15 years, it's been done by a really expert team that understand the nuance of television, of audiences, of everything that they need to know, as well as being quite quantitative. And so they were doing a super job of forecasting the audiences over the next few weeks. But we had a feeling that perhaps we could be doing something with machine learning that could improve on that. And you can imagine naively saying, well, okay, uh, instead of having humans do it, we'll get the machines to do it and they'll do a much better job. And I never for a moment believed that was going to be true because these experts had been doing this for 15 years and were doing it well. And sure enough, when we tried it first with machine learning, well, the machine learning did a pretty good job, but there was no way that we were going to be able to just say, oh, we should do it entirely in an automated fashion. And in fact, I think there's a really interesting lesson here that the kinds of mistakes the humans made and the kinds of mistakes that the machines made were different. They were complementary. And it started to it started to dawn on us that maybe a kind of hybrid team that took the best of both worlds could be could be the answer. 
And indeed, that's a lot less threatening as a message to say, well, I think we can improve on what the humans are doing. And I think we can improve on what the machines are doing. And, and the end result will be better with both involved. I think most human beings would be very happy with the idea that machines make mistakes, possibly less happy with the idea they make mistakes themselves. So how do you phrase that? How do you put it to a team that you're now part of something better because you've got machines helping you? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a really delicate conversation. And I think if you, you need to start from a place of admitting that people make mistakes. Sure. And fortunately that team were, they were smart and they were experienced and they've very carefully measured their mistakes. Um, so that's a good place to start. And of course, you need to be in a fairly psychologically safe environment whenever you're considering any kind of innovation. But well, I told them a story. So if you like, I'll tell you the same story and you can and yeah, see if you find it at all convincing. Please do. Uh, so the story starts 20 years ago with Gary Kasparov, the, the greatest chess player at the time and one of the greatest ever. And in 1997, he was beaten by Deep Blue at chess. And we might have have thought at that moment, well, that's it for us monkeys, right? And sure enough, the best chess player in the world now, well, it's not a human being, but interestingly, for 20 years, the best chess player in the world was not a machine either. The best chess player in the world is what they call a centaur team, a hybrid. That is to say, a really good, smart, chess playing human with access to a big computer and a big database. And that that combination outperformed just a big computer on its own. Just to be clear, a centaur is half man, half horse, if only it's not familiar with Greek mythology. I, I'm assuming, of course, that the machine bit is the legs and the human remains the brains and the, uh, the thinking bit up top. Let's not get too confused there. I love and that's the idea exactly of a... one of the things that was exactly yeah. one of the things I said to the Channel Four forecasting team <laughs> that like in this in this uh, image the machine is the arse end of the centaur, <laughs> and so you know it, it may not be a 50-50 split. Um, mm. It may be that it starts off where it's ninety five percent humans and just a little sort of little bit of machine, or in the case of chess, at this point I think the machines pretty much have it sewn up. But it took 20 years, even for the most black and white kind of deterministic, uh, right. perfect information scenario for the for the machines to eventually kind of say, OK, we, we can dominate this game. And for almost every other problem that we tackle that's interesting, certainly in the knowledge economy or involving creativity, it's so much more nuanced, so much more gray that I would expect that this age of the centaur in which we're entering, where the, the best teams are a hybrid, that that is going to last for a very long time for almost all of the interesting problems that we care about. I love the age of the centaur as a term. I think that's fantastic. You tackled this, didn't you, at Channel 4 when you were running the learning and development team there. You wanted to get great materials and you found that it was just a, an almost, well, Sisyphean task, if we're going to keep on using mythological terms. It was something that just seemed never to stop a huge task to collate all the information you wanted for your team. Yeah, and I, I guess, um, so I wasn't running learning and development, but I was definitely Sorry. very, very involved in, in that problem for my, my data science team. Exactly as you say, trying to think about how to find the best materials for training them. And so I, you know, I'll tell you a tiny bit about the kinds of problems that I'm working on now that are quite related, where mm. what we're trying to do with a company I, I work very closely with called Filtered, they're trying to apply this idea of a centaur tool to, uh, to exactly as you say. So where you have thousands or even hundreds of thousands of podcasts and articles and webinars and God knows what else on a variety of different topics. And you say, well, we know that we want to teach our employees about a variety of skills, whether it's having difficult conversations 
or how to visualize a time series, right? So it's soft skills to hard skills. So we've got all these skills that we want to teach them. How can we pick which of the learning materials that we have access to would be best appropriate to each of those? And this is an ideal task for a centaur because you could try and do it with just machine learning. And machine learning will obviously, you know, chomp through 100,000 documents, you know, lickety split, but it won't do that great a job unless you've got really smart human beings who are both creating the training set and then refining the results in response. And so what you end up with is the ball kind of going back and forth between the humans and the machines so often that you almost, well, you end up with something that you could not have produced with either humans or machines in isolation. This was the great promise of the internet or rather the World Wide Web, dawning at about, I don't know, not, not when it was first posited or even probably in the mid 1990s, but towards the end of the 90s, beginning of the 2000s, when it reached general consciousness, people were saying, my goodness, we now have access to the world's information. This is fabulous. We'll be able to find exactly what we need. But of course, the problem is when you have all that information, it's a sea that you're swimming in. And the question is, how do you find a, it's not even a needle in a haystack, it's an atom in a haystack. From all that information, how do you find the stuff that's really useful to you? So you've got this hybrid team and you've got a machine, you've got people. There's, you said, a ball going backwards and forwards. Can you talk us through the the process of who does what, what are the machines good at, what are the people good at in terms of finding a way through this haystack to find that one small thing that's actually going to be what you want. Well, let's take let's take a concrete example. If we are, let's take the example that Channel 4 had to solve with recommendations and personalization of the homepage. Right. And you've probably been to channel4.com or indeed any one of Netflix and a million others. And they'll, they will customize what you see based on what you've viewed and enjoyed in the past. Okay, so far, so good. Now, there's a trade-off here, though, because if we hand this job over entirely to the machines, then firstly, we may miss out on recommending things that we want people to watch, or that we, we may miss out on the chance to express our brand's voice. We may miss out on the chance to ensure that there's sufficient diversity, or in Channel 4's case, that, they're, that the remit to promote uh, experimental, innovative, or pluralistic content is being met. So for all that, these That's reasons, part of the job of Channel 4 explicitly they're told that they should do that or, or that's their mission anyway exactly the government has literally said yeah. by law this is your job and so to do all those things you, it, it's almost impossible to really train a machine at this stage to take into account that kind of uh, multitude of different factors but at the same time to have human editors doing that job well they do a great job of it but they can't <laughs> possibly customize 16 million or 20 million different home pages right so there's a trade-off there and what we ended up with was a situation where the machines had divided the Channel 4 audience into a few different clumps, and they'd assigned different editors to different clumps of users. The editors had created what we call slices, so kind of groups of content that might be about fast cars or around particular kind of DIY content or some, some other kind of clump of content they knew would appeal to a particular group of people. And then the machines would decide, okay, great. You know, within that, for you, Don, I think we're going to recommend this particular Anthony Bourdain episode or whatever. Yeah, that's I think you'll spot like that. on. I love Anthony Bourdain. When he's going through <laughs> South America, giving us all those fabulous recipes. You're right, as a human being, but I'm sure the algorithm would have found it too interesting. Okay. And right. so what you're doing then is you're, so the editors might create the clump of content, the algorithm might tweak it for an individual person. What you end up with as a result is something that's both scalable, but also nuanced. 
And that's the trade-off, right? Because the machine learning usually can scale, but lacks a kind of a a human nuance that makes it either um, meaningful or or, or feel like it has a distinctive voice. Now, this is fascinating. I totally get it. So you've got the algorithm able to scale, the machine able to scale. We've got the human beings providing the nuance, the detail. It's the opposite of the metaphor I had in my head. The metaphor I had in my head was... Uh, Michelangelo in his studio with a block of marble saying to his minions, well, go go and carve the bits off the edges of the block of marble. When it's about halfway there, I'll take over and I'll do the eyelashes and the kneecaps or whatever, you know, <laughs> do the fine detail. And it's the other way around almost. It's as if the human beings are providing, as you say, the clumps, the, the uh, categorizing things. But then the scaling of that down to the fine detail for each person is being done by the machines, because that's the only way you could do that at scale. You couldn't possibly have that individual scaling being done by human beings. How do you make sure that that teamwork works properly? So at what point does the editor give up the job of saying, well, that's the collection of programs that fit here? And the machine takeover and say, now we're going to cut it for Don Taylor or whoever. Yeah, and I think that's where it ends up being probably a different answer for every problem. Right. And you need really great communication between your human domain experts and your data science team. I don't know a way to ensure that this can work well other than by having built relationships up at first, uh, created an environment of safety where each is respecting the expertise and value that the other is bringing, and a sort of relatively firm commitment to try mm. to get to what's best for the organization. And usually you need some way of measuring whether you're doing a good job so that you can say, oh, great, when we add in a little bit of expertise from the human, that helps here. When we try and do this bit with the algorithm, that bit's not working very well. Oh, now it is. If you don't have a way of scoring things, quantitative and relatively objective, then you're probably dead in the water with this kind of approach. If we have two teams, which are both effectively made up of people, one are looking after the machine side of it, the other looking after the human expertise side of it, they are people. And unless there's some objective measure on the outside saying you're heading in the right direction or not, they are likely to believe that they are and you need to pull them back on track. But as well as that, of course, as you say, they need the psychological safety without naming any names. And maybe it's never happened to you, but have you ever come across the issue whereby that communication broke down, it didn't work out well for whatever reason? And if you didn't, that's fine. I mean, in some sense, that's the default. The default is that projects (laughs) seem promising. And then for whatever reason, you have a bunch of meetings and somehow you just can't quite get the buy-in, whether it's from the domain experts or from the person that's got to sign off the budget or... I mean, it, it usually, yeah, I mean, that, that's why I have a job as a data consultant, because more often than not, it's very hard to, to fuse these two kind of quite disparate uh, approaches. Going back to this idea of content for learning, we, a lot of people listening to this podcast are people who are particularly focused on learning. It's a bit like channels and content in your broadcast situation with Channel 4, but you've got a lot more different types of stuff. I mean, just in terms of medium, you'll have PDFs, you'll have PowerPoints, you'll have audio, you'll have video, you'll have text. You'll also have things which are different lengths, different styles, different formats, and considering different topics, it's a much more complicated set of things. Quite possibly also you'll have just a lot more of it. You'll probably have, you'll certainly have tens, you may have hundreds of thousands of items. How much does that complicate things? Well, it definitely does. I suppose one quick and dirty answer is, well, let's translate everything into just text. 
So whether it started out as a richly produced YouTube video or a podcast, ultimately we can re-represent it as just a script. Or maybe there's a short description, like a summary or an excerpt that, that's been provided. And, and so usually uh, machine learning needs something like that to work on. You can't, you can't so easily feed it raw materials, rich raw materials like you're describing for right. it to make sense of. So we kind of translate everything into a universal domain of text. And then for the uh, for filtered with the uh, helping learning and development professionals, we have a bunch of domain experts who are really, really good at thinking about what are the needs of large companies? What are the skill sets that their employees need to develop? And we worked with them to try and to first build up a data set of examples of where the different learning materials have been correctly categorized. Into and a human skills. being does that categorization. The human being does that right. categorization. And then over time, you try and hand over a little bit more of the job to the algorithm. But you are always going to need a human in the loop to keep mm. refining things, to realize that the skills framework that you devise might have changed over time because remote working is suddenly really big in 2020. And, and so you're, you're constantly evolving with that kind of human nuanced kind of meta level judgment like judgment about the whole uh, judgment about the project itself uh, at a higher level whereas the algorithm's just busily being like okay you give me a learning material and i'll tell you which skill it is that's all i do right it's not busily thinking about long-term trends or uh the fact that there's a pandemic and that might change things just completely oblivious <laughs> it's following the rules and anybody who's ever at the most basic level tried to write a process or I don't know, an Excel formula or a computer program will know that you're convinced you've got it right. You put some variables in and you get some unexpected results and you have to go back and refine it. And that's at a very basic level is sort of echoing what you're saying. So the human being, sorry, Greg. Well, yeah, exactly as you were saying. And so I think to, to take it up a level to say, okay, this isn't yet really a hybrid data team, what I've described. It, this is more like, okay, human being provides a training set, hands it to an algorithm. Where we want to go, where they're starting to feel a bit more like a hybrid joined up team would be if the algorithm starts helping with the definition of the skills. Right. If the algorithm starts noticing where there are gaps and if the human then is, is using that. And so it's, it's a, it's basically the, I think of it almost a little bit like a, a tennis match where kind of the quicker the ball is going back and forth between them, or if they're, if they're standing by the net and they're just volleying it back and forth to the point where you kind of can't quite see exactly where the human left off and the machine took over. That's when it's, I've, when I've seen that work really, really well, that's when you can end up producing really high quality output at scale. Perhaps they're juggling together and it's collaborative rather than tennis where they are uh, in competition right. with each other. Let's, let's go with that that's metaphor. That's better. Okay, so we can't anthropomorphize the algorithm. It's not thinking about anything. So how does it help categorize the skills? What, what does it do? We've obviously, perhaps you set it up to, to do that and then it runs off and does it. Well, so there's, we could, we could talk, we could have quite a lot of fun talking about the machine learning. I don't know if anybody <laughs> else will enjoy it as much as me, but I suppose that's a big topic. I think in, in the case with Filtered, they've devised quite a clever system that's based a little bit on trying to extract the most important and salient words and keywords and phrases that are really indicative of particular kinds of document, particular kinds of skill. 
And, and so that's something that both the machines and the people can, can kind of converse in the language of what are the most important and salient keywords and phrases. And they're doing a bunch of other clever stuff layered on top. But that's like one example. And in fact, I mean, if, if you wanted, we could talk a little bit more about writing and creativity in general and sort of imagine where this is going in the future. Because so far, this is, all, this is all real right here and now. But in 10 years, I think it's going to look very different. For me, that's a big question. You know, we've, we talked at the beginning about how data had been a lot of noise about eight years ago. Now it's part of our daily lives. Is it going to insinuate itself further into our lives? Are there any things it can't do? What, what would you see it doing eventually in terms of creativity, which is the ultimate bastion, isn't it, of the white-collar worker? No, nobody can write something like me, for goodness sake. Are you going to tell me now that it's possible for somebody else to, to write Shakespeare's sonnets? If we start with where we are and then try and imagine, say, 10 or 20 years into the future, it's very hard to give great intuitions about what's currently possible with machine learning. But my best suggestion to you is, if it's something that a human being can currently do in under a half a second or a second, then probably we can teach a machine learning algorithm to do it as well. Right. So for instance, uh, machine learning can recognize different kinds of flowers by looking at them. Machine learning can translate between French and English, or indeed, you know, write a transcript of what you're saying. These are all examples of things that humans can do so quickly, it almost seems to take us no time at all. But anything that takes you sort of three hours of head scratching to like figure out exactly the right way to present some uh, point to a board, like that's not something that we're going to see from a machine anytime soon. Right. And in fact, I'm not sure that it's something that we're going to see from a machine anytime in the next 10 or 20 years. In practice, where I see this going, if we return to our idea of the age of the centaur, let's think about writing, since that was the example you used. And we might ask the question, well, is an AI going to write an award-winning screenplay? Yeah. Well, probably not, because I think there's still just too much humanity, too much of the sort of sense of like, what is hunger? Well, you kind of need a human physiology to know really what hunger feels like and to be able to write in a really compelling way. That said, just as the best chess players in the world for the last 20 years aren't humans or machines, they're centaur teams. I think the best writers in the world in 20 years may not be machines and they may not be humans either. They might be central teams. They might be really great human writers with access to interesting tools. And I suppose we could think of some examples. So imagine um, I was thinking about Channel 4 show involving Detective Deering, who's uh, sort of foul-mouthed and hilarious. And uh, let's say you kind of, you're writing your script and you say, Detective Deering says, uh, right, I'm going home now. I think the algorithm could kind of go, Mah! our characterization detector says that that doesn't sound like her. It's not sufficiently differentiated from everybody else in the cast. And of course, in practice, she's much more like, say, I'm going home for a shave, shampoo and... Uh, Something, Something else, else begins with sure. yeah. yeah, exactly. And that's much more in character for her. So you could imagine how the, 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 the tone of voice could be noticed and, and you could start to, to sort of see that these two characters perhaps are too similar to one another. You might get clues or help or nudges from an algorithm that help you differentiate. It's extraordinary. I think about Coronation Street, which was originally conceived and written by a young man in his 20s, Tony Warren, who had a fabulous ear for dialogue because he'd grown up largely sitting under the table in the kitchen listening to his mum and his neighbours talking and all of the pithy dialogue that was part of the working class life in that street that was represented in Coronation Street came out of his head. Of course now what we're saying is well we can probably not have one person not rely on one person having let's say 20 years of experience of that before they start writing it but we can have 
algorithms pick it up and tell us where we need to tweak the script. And we're back to Michelangelo and his David. So the nuance is being added here by the people, but somebody else, in this case, the machine is detecting where the work needs to be done. Could it also detect where a story arc might not be going correctly and where there's a gap in the plot? Or is that too much? Well, so it's hard to know. I think the story arc is a good one. We have an intuitive sense that a story arc, you know, if we think mm. about the hero's journey, there's often some kind of descent into chaos and disorder. <laughs> and then maybe there'll be some redemption at the very end and that if we didn't get our kind of satisfying emotional gesturing you can't see it if we don't get that sense of an arc of, of things landing of our emotions going on a particular shaped journey then we don't feel that satisfaction that you know that, that, that's yes. the hallmark of a great story it seems intuitive to me to imagine that we might be able to visualize those story arcs with the help of an algorithm so you might be able to sort of see ah oh, you know what that hasn't quite landed right or mm. there's a loose end there that we're missing and to be able to see them both, you know, at the sort of level of a scene and maybe at the level of a series. And that, that those are tools that might enable an already great human writer to do an even better job. And that's what it comes down to, because ultimately any tool, as soon as it becomes cheap enough, becomes not a differentiator, but a commodity. Because if you can get an algorithm to do something for one script writing team, other teams will be using it. And the difference will be provided, not by the algorithm, probably, but by the people sitting on top of it, the heads of the centaurs leading the teams. Is that fair enough? I think so. I guess it's worth saying that we can expect this to evolve. It's 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 not going to be a static scenario. And the, the sort yeah. of proportion of humans to machine and the centaur is going to change for different tasks at different rates but the further we are from something being the kind of thing that you can do in half a second the slower i'd imagine the machines are going to start to be able to really get at the meat of it it's slightly mind-blowing to think of the centaur age i love the term it does encapsulate for me where we're heading and also of course not just where we're heading but what we're actually doing right now so much very often without even thinking about it greg detra thanks so much for coming on the show i've got to ask you two more questions which we always wrap up with could be a very long answer but what do you wish you'd known when you'd started in the whole world of learning you're tangentially in learning and the second one is what are you curious about right now which i'm going to have to restrict you on because i suspect you're very curious about a number of things so what do you wish you'd known when you started off in in learning and development i was fixated as a sort of ex-scientist on efficacy on how quickly I could help someone to learn and how well that they would retain what they had learned. In practice, just like in physics, how far we get is a function of how fast we go and how long for. How much we end up learning depends not just on how fast we learn, but also on how long we stick with it. And so in other words, the engagement and the motivation and, and keeping people going at it ends up being more important than yeah. just how well it works. And so I've ended up spending a lot more time thinking about behavior change and making something feel good to use than making it be as kind of efficient as possible, even if it's sort of a miserable and tiring experience. Ideally, it's both, of course. You have the motivation to start, uh, the motivation to continue, and these are maintained by the fact that you're learning and that it's a good experience. So that's, that's exactly right. What are you curious you're, about? Yeah, my second question, what are you curious about? So perhaps it's related. I'm kind of obsessed with tools for augmenting our own brains. Mm. And one of the things that we know about ourselves is that we evolved to move around in a three-dimensional world and that spatial navigation and uh, that we're very embodied. 
right? That we aren't just brains in a vat, that we are brains in a body and that the body affects the brain and the brain affects the body. Well, this we, I think, are starting to intuit and it's kind of become cliched. I think what's interesting is the degree to which actually the way that we use our body helps us think and that virtual reality, because it offers an embodied interface, potentially might be a dramatically more effective medium for thinking in than typing on a keyboard, which is almost like thinking laparoscopically, you know, like those keyhole surgery cameras, right? Like I've got these little fingers and the only thing that are moving is my fingertips and the rest of my body is held completely still. And I'm not making use of the gigantic tracts of brain that are involved in thinking about where things are in the world and moving and motor behavior and moving my arms around and figuring out where stuff is relative and, and visualizing. Like we're not using, using any of that. And so I imagine a world in which we think in virtual reality and that we write and we strategize and plan um, using a kind of embodied environment for our own garden of the mind that we can manipulate. That's making me think about a book called The Singing Neanderthals by Stephen Mithen, in which he posits that originally, uh, he uses Neanderthals as a sort of word to cover all uh, pre-modern human forms, that originally, as Neanderthals and as humans and as other uh, forms, we had a variety of ways of expressing ourselves, including singing, including motion, and including other things as well. And those have been reduced into primarily the text-slash-language-based form of communication that we focus on now. Maybe that what you're suggesting there, Greg, is that using technology, we can get back to a more fundamental way of communicating and thinking. And I would love to have you come back on the podcast and share with us in the future what you've discovered on that journey. But for the moment, my mind is sufficiently blown just from the conversation we've had today. I'm going to say, Greg Detra, thanks so much for coming on the Speaks Exchange. It's such a pleasure. Thanks, Bob.